As we began the book of Judges last week, we set the stage for everything we're going to be reading in the weeks ahead. And what we read last week was that the Israelites were charged to drive out the remaining residents of the promised land after Joshua's death, but with God himself as their leader. This time they wouldn't have Moses, they wouldn't have Joshua, God himself is leading them. And at first things went pretty well with that, but it didn't take very long for the situation to begin to unravel. The remaining residents of the promised land were tougher than the Israelites expected. Their iron chariots proved to be particularly challenging. Thus, most of the remaining residents that they were supposed to drive out, well, they end up staying amongst the Israelites. Now, the real reason the Israelites couldn't drive them out, it wasn't the iron chariots. It wasn't military equipment. The real reason they weren't driven out was the Israelites' own sin, their own rebellion, their own idolatry. The truth is that they didn't really want to drive their neighbors out when it came down to it. Instead, they just wanted to blend in with them and be just like them. That's why God warns them that their new neighbors, their so-called gods that the Israelites appear to love so much, well, they're going to prove to make life difficult for them. It doesn't take long at all before the Israelites are oppressed and abused by the people they thought they wanted to be just like. And God and his mercy will deliver them from that oppression through judges, men like Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar. But unfortunately, the Israelites don't appear to learn their lesson. Their sin gets the best of them time and time again. And the horrible pattern of the book of Judges repeats itself time and time again. That's where we pick up today in Judges chapters 4 and 5. Today we'll examine two primary characters by the names of Deborah and Barak. You might call Deborah and Barak co-judges. Deborah appears to be the brains of the operation, and Barak could be considered the brawn. However, even with Deborah and Barak in control, things don't really go exactly how they planned. So open up to Judges chapter 4, verse 1. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 139. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you as you leave today. But before we read together, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, um, all of your word. Not just the parts that get a lot of publicity, not just the parts that we have on coffee cups and vases and paintings and Bible covers, all that kind of stuff. We're thankful for all of your word. Uh, we're thankful that through every single page and every single letter and every single word, uh, you tell us a little bit about yourself. You tell us a little bit about who we are. You tell us a little bit about what we need. And Father, thank you that you've given us your word, that you're not just a God who is distant and removed and unknowable, but that you genuinely want us to know you, that you want us to know your character and your concerns and your priorities and your heart. And God, I pray that we would seek to know those things. I also pray that your word and your spirit would develop your heart within us, that your concerns would become our concerns, that your desires would be our desires, that your joys would be our joys. Thank you for all of your word, including the portion that we read this morning. I pray that we would look to it humbly, that we would take it in, 
that we would be thoughtful about what it is that we're reading and that you in your power and in your grace would use it to change us and leave us as different people than we were when we walked in this morning before we opened your word. Thank you again for this time. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, starting in Judges chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Javan, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Well, today's story begins like lots of the stories in the book of Judges. The Israelites have rebelled. God has justly punished them by sending a foreign king to oppress them. But the narrator quickly shifts the attention from the king, King Jobin, and puts the attention on Sisera, King Jobin's general. Now, specifically, Sisera has 900 iron chariots. That's a lot of iron chariots. And we've already seen that God's people don't always handle iron chariots very well. And as a result of Jobin's rule and Sisera's strength, the people helplessly suffer for 20 years. Eventually, they cry out to God for help. And if the pattern of judges that we've talked about so much, if that pattern holds up, it seems like now would be a good time for a judge to emerge, right? Well, look at verse 4. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. She even has her own tree. She's pretty important. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. So first we meet Deborah, and Deborah is a prophetess. Now, female prophets were somewhat rare in the Old Testament, but they certainly weren't unheard of. And where Israel currently is in their history, Deborah is the closest thing they have to one true leader. She's centrally located. She brings wisdom. She brings godliness. She brings stability to the people during a time of darkness and chaos. Give credit where credit is due. But then after Deborah, we meet Barak a military leader of Israel. Now, Deborah summons Barak, which 
certainly shows the level of respect people have for Deborah in Israel. She has enough power, she has enough pull to where she can say, hey, send Barak, and Barak listens. So Barak comes to Deborah, and she charges him to lead 10,000 Israelites into battle against King Javan and Sisera. And Deborah even has a message directly from God to Barak. God gives him a promise that he will be with him in battle, that he will ultimately be victorious. And yet look at Barak's response. The very first words he speaks in the passage, well, in those words, Barak appears to waver in his faith. He appears to doubt God. You might say he appears somewhat cowardly, saying that he will only go if Deborah is willing to join him. And as a result of his doubt, as a result of his lack of trust, Deborah specifically prophesies that Barak will achieve no glory in this battle. Because Barak won't defeat Sisera. A woman will defeat Sisera instead. So. Based on what we've read in the story so far, it's not that hard to guess who's going to actually defeat Sisera, right? I mean, it sure sounds like Deborah is the one who's going to get the glory. We've already established that she has authority over Barak by summoning him. She's the one who's going to be present for the battle because she's going with Barak. And of course, she's the only woman we've heard about so far in the story. It has to be her, right? Well, let's see. Verse 11. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in, here's a name, Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. And all the men who were with him from Harosheth, Hagoyim, to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So it starts out with what seems to be an irrelevant side note, right? I mean, some guy named Heber broke off from God's people and moved up north. Big deal. Who cares? Let's get to the real point of the story. The real point of the story is that the battle has now started. Barak goes in and he leads his army against Sisera and all those iron chariots and God overpowers Sisera. The battle isn't really much of a battle. It's pretty much a blowout. Not a single man was left of Sisera's army, except, of course, for Sisera. You have to see a little bit of irony in Sisera getting down from his chariot and fleeing, right? The chariots were supposed to be the thing that made Sisera so powerful, so invincible, so strong. And yet in order to save his own skin, Sisera has to get down and run away on foot. 
Well, what's going to happen to him? You can't really have closure. The battle's not really over until we find out what happened to Sisera, right? Well, verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of, look at that, Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. I'd say so. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. So Sisera flees to the north and finds safe haven in, well, what do you know? Heber's house. Maybe Heber wasn't just an irrelevant side note after all. You see, Heber's house had made peace with King Jabin. Now, that's a pretty big example of treachery. We're talking about one of Moses's descendants who has made peace with the oppressive Canaanites. Those people who are abusing God's people. Talk about treachery. Well, when Sisera saw Heber's house, he thought it was safe. Heber's wife, Jael, invites him into their home to rest. She promises to keep him safe. But then right after Jael gives him some milk and a blanket, and I presume a teddy bear, she proceeds to kill him in his sleep. She kills him in his sleep. A tent peg and a hammer. What a way to go. And by the time Barak arrives on the scene, well, the deed is done. The prophecy has come true. Sisera was defeated by a woman. What's ironic about it is that the name Barak means lightning in Hebrew, and yet Jael stole his thunder. I've been waiting all week for that. So Sisera is dead. Sisera's army is routed. Evil King Jabin is now completely powerless. He is now set up to be overthrown. And slowly but surely he is. And the pattern of the book of Judges continues because God has saved his people from oppression once again. So last week we talked about how when we read a story like this in the Bible, we often want to discover who the hero is. Okay, so who is the hero today? Well, we often hear that Deborah is the hero. Now, it is true that she did some good things. She was a godly leader during a time of great crisis. But was she the hero of the story? Eh, maybe not. 
I mean, unlike Barack, she didn't actually do any fighting. And while we initially thought that she would be the woman to defeat Sisera, someone else swooped in and got that crown. Okay, well, if Deborah's not the hero, then maybe it's Barack, right? I mean, Barack fought valiantly in the face of overwhelming odds. But again, the truth is that he's not really the hero either. His initial doubt is certainly a black mark on his resume, his initial cowardice when he was charged to go and fight the battle. And on top of that, when the battle was all said and done, Barak didn't get his man. Jael got Sisera. So he's not much of a hero either. So if it's not Deborah and it's not Barak, then surely that just leaves us with Jael. She's the hero, right? Well, again... Not so much. This is a woman who's twice been guilty of treachery, once in that breaking off from God's people, and then again by betraying the king that her house had made peace with by killing his general. And as far as the killing of Sisera goes, it wasn't exactly through heroic means, was it? You could say it was deceptive at best, and it was cowardly at worst. To kill him in his sleep the way that she did. So if the hero isn't Deborah, and if it's not Barak, and it's not Jael, well, who is it? Well, by now, the answer to that question should be relatively easy. God, of course, is the hero of the story. God was the real brains of the operation, not Deborah. He's the one who appointed her as a prophetess. It wasn't Deborah's idea to go fight Sisera. God gave her that charge to issue to Barak. And on top of that, God was the true brawn of the battle. I mean, there's no way that Barak, no matter how brilliant his plans may have been, there's no way he could have stood up to 900 iron chariots on his own. Sisera knew Barak was coming. Sisera had all the leverage, and yet he still lost. Because he wasn't just fighting Barak. He was fighting God himself. And then on top of that, God was the one who set up Sisera's defeat. I mean, what are the chances that Jael would be just in the right place at just the right time with a hammer and a tent peg and a sleeping Sisera in her tent? What are the chances? That's no coincidence. God's the hero of the story. God's the brains. God's the brawn. God's the one who really did this. And he deserves the credit. Not Deborah, not Barak, not Jael. But not only is he the hero in the story, his power shines brightly in a story like this. You know, the Israelites made that mistake of assuming that God couldn't defeat iron chariots. That that's the one thing God couldn't stand up to. Well, Sisera made a similar mistake in assuming that his iron chariots made him invincible. Both parties would have done well to think like David did years later. Look at Psalm 20, verses 6 through 8. David writes there, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. 
By the time that Sisera knew his chariots weren't going to save him, it was too late. The army had been defeated. The battle was done. The Israelites also failed to trust in God more than chariots. Both parties could have done well to think like David did. But not only does God's power shine through in a story like this, God's providence shines through in a story like this one. God uses unexpected means, unexpected people, unexpected things, unexpected situations to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Several of the tribes of Israel would be rebuked for not stepping up to the plate, for not helping out Naphtali and Zebulun and Barak. And yet, God still found a way to accomplish his purposes apart from them. God found a way to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, even using a treacherous woman, just like he did years earlier with a woman named Rahab. Remember her? A woman of questionable character, a woman who was not a friend to God's people, and yet she hid the spies as they were scoping out the promised land. God used a treacherous woman back then. He uses a treacherous woman in Rahab. And ironically, Rahab and Jael wouldn't be the only traitors that God would use for his purposes. Much later, a traitor named Judas would play a role in God's plan to save his people from sin and death. God's power shines through. God's providence shines through in a story like this. And the beauty of it is that God is just as powerful now as he was back then. And God is just as providential now as he was back then. That's why you and I today can trust in the power of God, even when the deepest, darkest powers in all of creation and of Satan himself seem stacked against us. Sisera had all the leverage, and yet he lost. And for us, we might think that the world has all the leverage Those who oppose Christ have all the leverage, and yet we trust in the power of God. And we trust in the providence of God. That's why we trust that God can use people like us in spite of our warts and our imperfections and our flaws. Because he used people like Rahab and Deborah and Barak and Jael and even the man who betrayed Jesus. God used him for his glory and for the good of Of his people. But there's one more aspect in the story I want to look at. You see, the story of Deborah and Barak doesn't end in chapter 4. Chapter 5 is all about the battle. Deborah and Barak sing to God in celebration of his deliverance. Now, that's not all that uncommon in the pages of Scripture. God does something big, God does something amazing, so people spend some time in worship or celebration or prayer. That happens somewhat regularly. So you'd be tempted to read over it, but before you read over something like chapter 5, think about Deborah and Barak's situation. Think again about the situation they find themselves in. Neither one of them, Deborah or Barak, got the glory of killing Sisera. Maybe Deborah had hoped it would be her, only to discover that it was Jael in the end. And as for Barak, well, back then, having a woman defeat your enemy instead of you, back then, that would have been humiliating. 
And yet, in spite of Deborah's potential disappointment, in spite of Barak's certain humiliation, they sing. In spite of all that stuff, Deborah and Barak worship. Even though they both both may feel that they got a raw deal, well, in chapter 5, they celebrate God. I think that leaves us with a challenging question today. We have to ask ourselves, are we content to be used by God how he sees fit, even if that means we don't get the glory in the end? Are we content to celebrate God as the hero of the story instead of trying to get the glory and the accolades and the credit for ourselves? You know, sometimes I meet people who are new to Prairie View for coffee or breakfast or some other kind of meal. And one of the questions I'll ask people quite a bit is, okay, well, what is it that has kept you coming back to Prairie View? You've been three Sundays in a row. What keeps drawing you back to Prairie View each week? And sometimes I'll get different answers. A lot of times I'll hear things like, well, you know, when I came back that second time, people remembered my name. And that meant the world to me, that people remembered my name. Or I'll hear something like, well, that first time I came, I really felt welcomed and cared for. And I just wanted to come back. It felt warm. It felt family-oriented. That means a lot to me. Okay, great answer. Or they'll say things like, you know, I just got a really nice card in the mail from one of your elders, and it really touched me, and I wanted to come back to that. Okay, very good answer. But then as I'm sitting there, and I'm having that conversation, and they're rattling off these things that brought them back to Prairie View, I find myself thinking, you know, are you sure there's nothing else that brought you back to Prairie View? Um, You know, just spitballing here, uh, but uh, sermons? I mean, like, has that been a part of, of you coming back to Prairie View? You see, I wrestle with that temptation to get some kind of glory, to get some kind of credit, to get some kind of accolades. I think we all wrestle with that at some point, in some way. But the question this passage leaves us with is a simple yet humbling one. Can we as individuals, can you and can I, can we as a church body, can we find joy in being used by God even if we don't get the credit or the glory, or the accolades in the end. At the end of the day, when he gets the glory instead of us, are we still able to sing about him? And are we still able to celebrate him the way Barak and Deborah did? So today's co-judges, Barak and Deborah, they weren't the heroes of the story in the traditional sense. They did some good things. God used them, but they also had their flaws. But if there's one thing that does make Deborah and Barak heroic, perhaps it's this. Deborah and Barak are heroes in the sense that they were content to let God be the hero. They were content to sing about him and celebrate him, even if they didn't get the glory of the battle. I pray that the same would be said about us as individuals, that that could be said about us as a church, that when God uses us, however he sees fit, even if we don't get the glory in the end, we would still celebrate him and sing to him and rejoice in him. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for stories like this that seem bizarre, that seem strange to us. Battles and death and tent pegs and all that crazy stuff. But there are still valuable lessons we can learn from a story like this. I pray that as we leave here this morning, after singing about you and celebrating you, I pray that we would continue to do that in the various places that we'll go, in our cars, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, all the places that you've put us, that we would sing about you and that we would celebrate you. I pray that we would be content and that we would even find joy in being used by you however you see fit. And again, sometimes that might lead to some kind of accolade, sometimes that might lead to some kind of credit, but... In the big scheme of things, we want you to get the credit. We want you to get the accolades. We want you to get the glory. And I pray that we would direct people's eyes to you, that we would sing about and celebrate you when you do something in this world. Thank you for this church, this body of believers. I pray that as we embark on yet another week, that we would do it by the power of your spirit, that we would look to your word for guidance and strength and wisdom and that you would use us in the various places, however you choose to do that. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for your son who died for us, who was betrayed. And yet even you even used that situation for our salvation. Thank you for his broken body and his shed blood. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.